Okay. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Melanie Alnwick. This is the Mansion Murders Trial Podcast, our second uh, episode in the trial, but really this would be the ninth episode of the Mansion Murders podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, we are live right now on our Fox 5 DC Facebook page. Uh, and then later on, of course, if you would like to download this and listen to it again, you can get us on iTunes, on Google Play, also on Audio Boom. Um, interesting week in the trial. There were only three days of testimony this week because uh, they were off on Wednesday for the Jewish holiday and also they're always off on Fridays because this is taking up so much of the court resources that um, they need to use Fridays to take care of other matters in um, in D.C. Superior Court. So a couple of interesting things this week. Of course, the witness that everybody wanted to hear from and that was Jordan Wallace. Uh, he testified for uh, two days, um, prosecution and then the defense kind of tried to poke some holes in his testimony and then the prosecution really had to work to try to uh, prop him back up as a credible witness. Also, uh, we heard from uh, people who uh, actually saw a man who resembled Darren Wint going under the garage of the Savopolis home um, sometime after 12 o'clock on the 14th on that Thursday. So that was interesting testimony we'll go over as well. And then we want to talk a little bit about um, some of the evidence that was introduced in the case. And I did promise you guys also that I had an answer for your question about those family dogs, Ginger and Bear. So if you do have any questions while we are in the middle of this podcast, of course, uh, Risa is with us and she's monitoring our Facebook page and um, she will definitely pass those questions on to me. We got a couple of questions that you guys also have uh, submitted ahead of time. So let's talk about Jordan Wallace. We know there have been so many questions about Jordan Wallace. Um, he, When he first got on the stand, he the prosecutors took him through the events of the day, how he had uh, been at the studio, and then on Wednesday evening he got a message from Sava essentially saying, hey, Jordan, change of plans. I have a package for you to pick up. Please go straight to the office. I'll be in about 10 or so. Uh, lots to do. I'll be back in touch. Appreciate it. His voice sounded perfectly normal. Uh, this was about 8 o'clock in the evening on Wednesday, sometime after Sava had come home, and we believe at that point that the family was being held. Uh, Jordan became very emotional on the stand. When they asked him whose voice is that, he broke down. He said it was Sava. Um, and then he went through the other events of the day and of the next day that uh, he had received a text in the morning. He had gotten his directions that he was to, to meet, go to the office. Uh, Ted Chase, the CFO of American Ironworks, met with him. Uh, and then they went together to the bank to get what he thought was just a package. He said he thought it had something to do with money, but he wasn't sure because that's why they were at the bank. He said that uh, then Ted pulled those four rolls of cash out of the out of his pockets. That was the crazy thing, right? That a bank would just hand him these wads of cash and described as, you know, four big wads of cash, $10,000 in each packet. They were tied with uh, those white money bands, but they didn't put it in any sort of thing for him. I guess Ted thought maybe somebody would actually put it in an envelope for him. But then, so he had to hand the cash, took it out of his pockets and gave the, the bundles of cash to Jordan. He put them in his red backpack uh, and then followed his instructions. He, uh, he texted Saba at 9.51 and said, I have the package and I'm on the way. And then he was told to call uh, 
when he was 10 minutes out to get directions. He did, uh, prosecutors did show um, the evidence, the timestamp from his cell phone that he made a call at 10.15 saying he was 10 minutes away. He was told to leave the cash on the driver's seat of the red Mosler sports car uh, and that the right side of the garage door had been left open for him. And then at uh, 10.26, he texted Sava again saying package delivered. He said then he went to work in Chantilly. Uh, Prosecutors showed a receipt that he went to Lowe's in Chantilly. Uh, I'm sorry, they actually showed a video of him uh, from Lowe's in Chantilly at noon and then a receipt from him at the Chantilly Arby's at 1224 uh, and pretty distinctive. Uh, Jordan at that time was wearing sort of like these uh, coral colored pants and a very bright um, shirt that had like the large buffalo check on it. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, And it was red, white with a little bit of blue in it. So his outfit that day was very distinctive. He also was wearing uh, sort of his signature big white sunglasses. He always likes to wear um, uh, sort of fashionable clothes. So he was seen on the video, the security video at the bank in that outfit. And then he was seen in that same outfit at the Chantilly Lowe's. So prosecutors are trying to show where he was so that he has an alibi for where he was at particular times. But um, as we know, some people have said that his testimony was problematic. Um, Some of that comes from from this. This is the affidavit in support of an arrest warrant that um, D.C. police had uh, used in order to arrest Darren Wint. And twice here, the officer who was uh, who basically filled out this report twice. He used the terminology that Jordan Wallace lied. He said that Jordan Wallace lied when he stated the money was in a manila envelope when he got it from Ted Chase. Also said that Jordan Wallace lied when he said the vehicle was locked, that indeed uh, then later Wallace changed his story and said that the manila envelope came from his own car. He didn't want to put the cash, just bare cash out there on the seat of the Red Moser sports car. Uh, And so that's where things became problematic for Jordan Wallace. We were shown a um, we were shown the interrogation room from uh, when police were talking to Jordan Wallace, and uh, he was there for four and a half hours. And it's clear that the detectives didn't believe him that uh, that a bank would just hand him wads of cash. And uh, they also said that they had a problem. They looked through his cell phone, and the one detective was saying. I have a big problem with the fact that you omitted this. And, and Jordan was saying, I, I didn't omit it. I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't mean to uh, overlook that. And just saying that it was a long day, that he was tired. And so I think prosecutors were able to kind of leave it with the impression with the jury that um, Jordan Wallace did correct his statements while he was in that four and a half hour interview, why the uh, detectives on the case characterized it as lying, I think that is their characterization. But uh, the, the prosecution is trying to say it was not a lie. They were simply misstatements from a guy who was stressed and scared and confused and didn't know what was going on. Uh, however, there were, Wallace is a key witness, right? So what the what the defense is trying to do is to show that he's not credible. Uh, if they can show in any way that he's not credible, then the jury can kind of, in a way, maybe discount the rest of his testimony. So 
really, really kind of interesting tactic on the part of the defense. So first of all, before Jordan Wallace was even called to testify, uh, there was a discussion where the jury wasn't present. The defense was trying to say that Jordan Wallace should not testify until he had an attorney representing him in court because the defense said that they had uh, two lines of questioning where they believed uh, Jordan might want to plead the fifth, that he wouldn't want to incriminate himself. And the that's a tactic in a way. I mean, either they have the information or they believe that if um, Jordan has an attorney with him, then it would make it look like he has something to hide. Uh, the prosecution was adamant that Jordan Wallace did not need an attorney with him. They said that uh, he has no criminal liability in this. So the judge listened to both of those arguments. That she brought Jordan Wallace up and talked to him uh, quietly out of from what we could hear and said, no, he's fine. He understands what's going on, and uh, he wants to testify without his attorney present. So I think the defense kind of lost on that point because they felt that uh, if— Jordan Wallace had an attorney with him, maybe that might make the jury look at him differently as someone less than honest. So what did the defense have against Jordan Wallace? What did they think they would bring up that he would want to not incriminate himself on? So on cross-examination, first of all, they were pretty uh, pointed, let's put it that way, with him. They asked him about his marijuana use, and uh, he did admit that he used marijuana in college. Now, we know it's not a crime anymore to possess or to smoke marijuana, but uh, they also asked him if he'd ever purchased it from any of the Wint brothers. So I think they're trying to make a connection between, they have to make a connection between Jordan Wallace and some of the Wint brothers. The defense said in opening statements that, as we know, they believe that Daryl Wint and Stefan Wint, Darren's brothers were the ones who planned and executed the initial kidnapping. They say that Jordan Wallace was probably the inside man. They think he had uh, knowledge of the house, knowledge of the security system, uh, those sorts of things. So they have to show that Jordan Wallace had some connection to the winds. And he was adamant in saying he does not know them. He never purchased any marijuana from them. So uh, we'll see whether the defense actually has anything for real on that. Don't know. Um, the other thing they brought up with Jordan Wallace was uh, that when his car was searched, that it smelled of gasoline. And they also said in opening statements that the car uh, tested positive in two spots for ignitable fluids. So Jordan's answer to that was, look, he's a car racing fanatic, that he works on cars, he worked at a go-kart track, uh, and that um, he sometimes would transport gasoline in his car and had been known to, he said he once he put a carburetor in his backpack. So that was his reasoning for uh why those materials would be in his vehicle. So I did have a question. Um, I actually had my own question here before I get to your questions. So I had a question uh, for an attorney because one of the things I was curious about is, I mean, they're going after Jordan Wallace hard here. Uh, and I wanted to know if the defense can allege that Jordan Wallace committed a crime without evidence. You know, can they, can they, can they say these things? Can they say or plant that seed of doubt uh, with the jury that he may have purchased marijuana without having anything to back it up? So what I was told from David Benowitz, founding partner at Price Benowitz, um, he's a defense attorney, uh, and he, he's, we were, he's a great guy. We're able to bounce questions off of him when we need them. Uh, so what he says is 
there has to be a good faith basis to ask the question. So they have to have some kind of information um, either that maybe maybe it was just that he had smoked marijuana. And the fact is that Jordan's dad, uh, a retired Prince George's County police officer, lived in the same apartment complex as the Wint brothers. So that could be enough to meet the standard for good faith. Uh, David Benowitz told me that the standard for good faith is pretty low. Also mentioned that um, the government could choose to object if they wanted to, and then the ju- the judge would have to meet with the prosecution and the defense and, and kind of test whether or not they have that good faith basis and decide whether the questioning can go forward. So... Um, we're going to continue while our while our lights are going on. Raisa, um, if you see that post back there, no, the post in the middle of the newsroom, okay. there's a number one button on there. That's what you need to press in order to get our studio lighting on. But we're going to continue while we're um, while we're trying to figure out the studio lighting. We're just going to continue with our audio portion of this. Hey, you know what? It's live podcast. It's live TV. Anything can happen, right? So again, uh, apparently the defense can allege that someone may have committed a crime um, and they just need to have some kind of some kind of basis for it. So that was my question. And then I know that some of you guys had questions, too. Um, Let's see. Uh, Shantice Coachman, who's a member of our Fox 5 D.C. Mansion Murders group, uh, she wanted to know if Darren Wynn showed any expressions in court. And did he look up at the picture of poor little Phillip's body? So she's referring to uh, yesterday, the first thing that they talked about in court was um, whether or not they should show this picture to the jury. Um, the defense did not want the picture shown because they felt like it was prejudicial, that it would inflame the passions of the jury. They also said it was extremely disturbing to everyone. Um, I would agree with that. Uh, The prosecution said we need to show it because the jurors need to see the extent of the damage that was caused. So uh, eventually the judge ruled that they could show the photograph. uh, And it, it, it was in the course of of having one of the firefighters testify, one who actually found the body of Philip in that room. And um, he said it was it was black in there and smoky, and he unexpectedly fell through a hole in the floor. Um, the fire was so hot that uh, a fire investor testified that there was a flashover in that room that literally everything burned on just right away. So it gets so hot, all of a sudden everything just explodes right um and there were there was also a a point of origin of the fire so the fire was so hot that it burned through uh the floorboards and that's what caused the bed to kind of tilt a little bit into the floor and caused that firefighter to fall and uh when he was falling he said he he grabbed onto something to stabilize himself that's when he grabbed onto the bed and then that's when he uh felt and felt what he thought was a body the thing is the body didn't have any features. He said he felt for the head, but he couldn't feel a face. And um, the the image was then shown. It was only up for five seconds. There were no uh, there were no arms or legs below the elbows and the knees, and there really were no features. It was it was a completely smooth kind of surface. It was odd looking, almost like a a um, a stuffed doll before you put uh, any features on it, you know, just the, like that muslin covering. Um, if you were just kind of building the body of a doll before you began to 
put other things on it. I, I don't know if that's a good description or not, but that's that's the way that it appeared to me. Anyway, did Darren Wynn show any expression in court at that? Um, no, he didn't. Um, he really hasn't shown a lot of expression in court at all. I, I'm sure he's been coached up as well. Um, I haven't seen him reacting to anything. As Paul and I mentioned last week, uh, he's deferential. He comes in well-dressed. He stands up and addresses the judge when the jury comes in. He uh, stands up um, when the jury comes in and then sits down. So I think he's following his, uh, his instructions there very, very well. Another really interesting thing that we had happen was the uh, eyewitness identification, sort of. We'll call it sort of. So um, two people who work across the street from where the Savopolis mansion was, um, it's all, the mansion is on the corner of Woodland Drive and 32nd Street. And across 32nd Street is the back area of the Australian ambassador's property. And uh, two people who were working there, they were outside on the 14th, uh, there's sort of like an upper terrace. There's a, a lawn area and then an upper terrace that kind of overlooks the what would be the garage area. If you guys have seen those pictures of where the garage is and the and the driveway of the Savopolis Mansion. So they said it was about noon and they both knew it was noon because um, they had been talking about whether they should call somebody for some supplies for the yard work before the lunch break. And um, they happened to see someone who kind of just caught their eye coming across down the sidewalk and then heading purpose purposely is what they called it uh, heading along the sidewalk and then making a diagonal straight for the right side garage door they said that this person was medium build less than six feet tall they said that uh he was wearing a white shirt perhaps a tank top uh dark skin dark jeans shoulder-length dreadlocks, maybe wearing a skull cap with a string bag on the back. And they said as the man approached the right-side garage door that it just kind of seemed to open for him, and he crouched underneath and the door closed behind. Uh, so they didn't really get a chance to see the face. And they also testified on the defense asked, well, did you see um, Did you see whether they were wearing, was this person wearing a construction vest or a construction hat? And they both said no. Those two pieces of evidence are key because we know that uh, some DNA evidence is going to come in about that vest and that hat. And we also know that somebody was seen about 1.30 in the afternoon uh, driving a Porsche that resembled Amy's erratically down New York Avenue. And uh, that person, that witness said that that driver was wearing the construction vest and the hat. Another interesting thing that came up from our um, Mansion Murders podcast, uh, episode four, I'm going to try to pull this up here for you. So um, one of our colleagues here, Ronnie McRae, who worked extensively with Sarah Fraser on the initial Mansion Murders podcast, uh, drew, drew this to my attention. Uh, so I... I want you to hear, I'm going to try to play it. If not, I'll have to paraphrase it. This is uh, Sarah talking to some women who uh, noticed something in the Hyattsville parking lot where uh, Amy's burned out Porsche was located. Let me see here. So you're in the area of where the Porsche was torched on May 14th, 2015. Were you working that day? Yes, I was. Two of us were leaving and going to our cars in the parking lot. And there was a gentleman uh, walking through the parking lot that just made me uneasy. So I stopped my coworker and said, let's just kind of huddle here, hold your purse, talk. 
let's not go to our cars till we see what he where he's going and what what is his deal and i can still to this day see him see his what he was wearing the necklace hair jeans the belt the whole nine yards and it's just it was a very uneasy feeling and i've been here for years and never had that feeling um so he stopped turned around near our cars and walked back the other way kind of looked around and then came back past us again now once he was passed we went and got in our cars and we left and it was probably within 10 minutes after we left before the um the porsche was set on fire Okay, so interesting there uh, that they said that they could see, see that man. And uh, what I understand is they said that that man was wearing a white shirt and dark jeans. So that would match the same description uh, of the same person that was seen going underneath that garage door. Uh, we also had a question on the um, on the Facebook group about the, the garage door opener and we know that it was introduced into evidence yesterday, a garage door opener. So people have been, a lot of people have been speculating, well, how did, how did Darren Wint get under the garage door? Was somebody opening it inside for him or did he have an opener? Both of the witnesses who saw the man said they did not see anything in his hand. Um, so a garage door opener was introduced into evidence yesterday. We have no way of knowing where that opener was, whether it was, um, you know, we, there's no way at this point saying that that Darren went had it in his hand, but we assume that it may have been one of those pieces of evidence uh, that was sampled for DNA. We don't know yet what the results of that were. Also, Jordan Wallace testified that the family did have garage openers in two of the cars, so uh, that's going to be some interesting testimony that is going to come up as well. Um, another question that we had, uh, question going back to last week's testimony, uh, if you remember that. Uh, Nelly Gutierrez said that she uh, got a text from Amy at 9.56 in the morning and that uh, then she tried to call Vera at 5, I'm sorry, at 8.30 in the morning and 8.46 in the morning uh, on that Thursday. Um, and she also texted back to Amy that uh, she didn't have any plans to go over and that Monday is fine. So the question was, why didn't Nelly try to call the house when she couldn't reach Vera? You know, that's a tough question. I mean, I don't know if she, she probably didn't call the house on a routine basis. Uh, she did testify that when Amy texted her um, that she didn't she wasn't planning on going over to the house. It wasn't her day to work at the house. And so she just kind of was done with it. We don't know where she was afterwards. Somebody wanted to know, well, when um when Bernardo Alfaro, who is Vera's husband, when he got worried and then went over to Nellie's husband's house, where was Nellie? At that point, we, we just don't really know, and she certainly wasn't asked any of those questions. Um, and we did hear from Vera's family this week. That was interesting, too. Um, her daughter, stepdaughter, Claudia Alfaro, very emotional on the stand. You can imagine, I mean, how difficult that would be to know that you were there. You were there that morning. You were right near where your mother, stepmother, wife was being held. Um, and you just couldn't detect it and you just couldn't get to her. So Claudia was outside the Savopolis mansion with her father. So her father got worried. He came home at 7 in the morning. He tried her cell nine times and couldn't get her. But then he had to go to work. He works overnight. So he wasn't able to 
reach her. When he got back from work, she wasn't home. Uh, and then they went to the house, and Bernardo said he tried knocking on the door, uh, and nobody answered. He got the feeling that somebody was inside, and uh, th- because he heard a chair scraping. And it was right at that moment when he went to look in a window that he got the call from Sava saying, hey, I'm really sorry, I should have called you. But, uh, you know, Vera went to the hospital with Nellie. So that, w- that was very confusing. And Claudia also, when she was out there, she had texted pictures of Amy's Porsche, which was parked on the curb outside of the house. Uh, so I think that is going to be in- interesting as well, that the Porsche was there when Claudia and Bernardo were there, but it was not there later. Um, so a lot of interesting things to come up this week. I promised you guys an answer on the dogs. We know the dogs are Ginger and Bear. Uh, they are Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. Ginger is an older dog, and Bear is a puppy. Um, and also, the man who first saw the fire, he testified this week, and he said he, he tried to pound on the door of the house when he saw the smoke curling up out of the eaves. And um, he said that he heard a dog barking, but there was no answer at the door, so that's when he went and called 911 and told them to come quick. Uh, so a lot of people curious about where the dogs were uh, we're going to hear some evidence about whether or not the dog door might have been taped we know that the dog stayed into the kitchen area um, but I did ask uh, someone this week someone uh, who was close to the family where the dogs are now and they told me that they are with somebody they're not with family but they are with somebody who knows the dogs and who who cares for the dogs very much and that they are happy and very well cared for so I think that's a I don't know. I don't know if we can call that good news, but um, we can at least put our concerns about the dog to rest. Lots of evidence to come, right? Lots of evidence. We've got, we still need to hear about the cars. We still need to hear about all the DNA evidence. We haven't even gotten yet to the arrest of Darren Wint, uh, where he was, who he was with. We know there was cash. We know his brother. But, uh, he... Uh, basically there was a Facebook blackout at the time where he was supposedly in the, that house with the Savopolis family. All of this before the defense even puts its case on. We're up to about 30 witnesses so far. Oh, and somebody else had a question about uh, witness number 92. So <laughs> I think we're going to be a ways away before we hear from this person. Uh, Lydia Conrad. Uh, During the jury selection process, one of the judge's 17 questions was whether jurors would have any bias in hearing the testimony of a witness who had made a plea bargain in exchange for testifying. So, yes, Lydia, that question refers to witness 92. He was a cellmate of uh, Darren Wins for eight days, and apparently he wrote two letters to the U.S. Attorney's Office saying that somebody else was responsible for this crime. If I had to guess, I think that probably that would be the defense that would bring... uh, witness 92 up in their case but um that's what it refers to um you also ask do we know if it refers to ruined cellmate or is it possible it was to refer to any other witnesses i think really uh, lydia it was only referring to witness 92 um but we don't know who all the witnesses are going to be yet for uh for darren went and that is and that's the other big question as i mentioned before what does the prosecution have and uh, not the prosecution what does the defense have what are they going to show us uh do they have any proof of their theory that uh stefan went and and uh daryl went were involved in this do they uh have any proof that jordan wallace is an unreliable witness um they certainly 
are alleging that they do. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, what they are going to bring forward. But I think we're going to get... Um, uh, we're going to ha- probably have a few more weeks of testimony from the prosecution before we get to that. They told us that it would be about um, they told us it would be a two week trial. But um, I think the prosecution's going through it pretty quickly. And I think we have time for one last question. And this has to do with the pizza boxes. We, we know we've heard about the pizza crust. Uh, pizza boxes also were introduced as part of the evidence yesterday. A couple of things. Let me let me try to get that in real quick. Uh, we know that the, a knife that was used to prop open a basement bathroom window, that was introduced into evidence. Some pieces of duct tape were introduced into evidence. Um, a shirt, uh, a number of items that appeared to be blood-soaked, including um, a a baseball bat and I'd said early on I thought that that was going to be ominous testimony when we had um when we had Jim Martin who is Philip's grandfather testify that he had given Philip a, a special birthday gift that was a Louisville Slugger baseball bat with his name engraved on it that bat with some blood on it was introduced into evidence yesterday so the question from Missy Robinson about the pizza boxes she said that the tech testified that he didn't remember pizza crust being collected um I don't recall that testimony, but to be honest, sometimes I have to step out of court and uh, tweet and update other people on this trial. But what I did do is I went back to the affidavit, and it definitely says two pizza boxes were recovered. And then it says one of the pizzas appeared to be whole cheese with none of the pieces consumed. The second pizza was pepperoni and appeared to be three-quarter or more consumed. Additionally, inside the pepperoni pizza box were several pieces of pizza and uneaten crust from a partially eaten piece or pieces of pizza. So, Missy, if I had to guess, I would say that uh, maybe the tech didn't remember the crust being collected is because it's possible that it was in the box itself. Um There are also other people who collected uh, evidence. So one tech testified, but we know the detective is also going to come back and testify as well. So uh, as we said, much, much more to come. It is now 1130, so my time has expired. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you to Raisa Crespo for uh, her help with our live feeds. Also want to let you know, if you want to subscribe to this, that would be great. Uh, We're going to be on iTunes, Audio Boom, Google Play. You can uh, submit questions to me or comments on Twitter at Fox 5 Melanie or on my Melanie Alnwick Fox 5 DC Facebook page and of course on our Fox 5 DC page as well. Thank you guys so much. I'll be following the trial and we'll see you next week.